really do believe that we can cure this problem. Mm -hmm. I really believe that if average citizens come together and everybody kind of puts their best heads together, that we can find solutions to this scourge upon our, our society. Welcome to the People People Podcast. We're on a mission to spread human connection. Welcome to another episode of the People People Podcast, and welcome to season two of the People People Podcast. Thanks for your patience during the off season as we worked to produce some new episodes and took a little time off. Really proud of what the first season represented. I'm really excited about what this season might become. This is a special episode. This first episode of season two features a conversation with Pastor Steve Poos Benson. On April 20th, 1999, a shooting happened at Columbine High School in Littleton, Colorado. I didn't live here at the time, but now I happen to live right here in Littleton, Colorado. And back then, on April 20th, 1999, back when I was in college, two boys killed 12 students, one teacher, and then themselves. 21 other people were injured at Columbine that day. Countless others were traumatized forever. According to an article I recently read, since Columbine happened in 1999, more than 230 school shootings have happened in K-12 settings. This is a conversation worth having in as many different ways as we can. How can we make it stop? Well, I certainly don't claim to have the answer. Neither does my guest today, Steve Poos Benson. But he and I have been engaged in a number of conversations about the importance of having conversations about stopping this horrible plague on our society. School shootings are common now. It's a regular occurrence. Students today are trained regularly in what to do in an active shooter situation. It's commonplace. That certainly wasn't commonplace back in 1999 and well before that, for sure. I hope you'll enjoy this conversation. It's a serious topic. And I think as we consider how social excellence, how our choices, our individual momentary choices to engage with people in meaningful ways, to spread human connection. That certainly isn't even close to the answer of how to, how to deal with this major problem, but could it be a part of the solution? Could it be something that we have in our control? Could the way that we choose to engage socially with the people around us be a key factor in how we might make an impact on the safety of schools and the reduction of these mass shootings that are happening, not only in schools, but in other places, obviously. I hope you'll enjoy this conversation. And I'm really glad you're joining us this season of the People People podcast. I'm glad to know that you're out there, people like me, who know, and maybe aren't perfect all the time, but who know that there is power in the little momentary choices that we can make to spread human connection and to be curious, generous, authentic, and vulnerable with the people around us and to choose to live a life of social excellence, to choose to uplift the people around us through the way that we interact with them. 
I'm glad to know that you're out there. Welcome back to season two. As always, you can learn more about us at social-excellence.com. You can find us on social media at at social excellence. There's no E in social excellence in our social media handles. And you can find this podcast at peoplepeoplepodcast.com or wherever you download fine podcasts. Hey, thanks again for joining us. Enjoy this conversation. Welcome to another episode of the People People Podcast. This is your host, Matt Matson. I'm sitting here today with the Reverend Dr. Steve Poosbenzen. I, I did them all. Ooh, that's yeah. a title. I did all of them, yeah. That's a handle. Steve is the lead pastor, the head pastor here at Columbine United Church. We're actually sitting in his office right now. Columbine United Church is in Littleton, Colorado. It's my home church. Steve is an important professional and spiritual mentor of mine and somebody oh, who's you. just been a, a gift of my life. Well, uh, thank I you. Think, yeah, absolutely. Steve, I want to talk today about something that I know is really important to you and has become really important to me, but I, I suppose I'm an adopter of the issue, if we can talk about that. Mm-hmm. We mentioned we're sitting at Columbine United Church. What are we, about three miles from Columbine High School? Right, yeah. right. I live on just the other side of Columbine High School, maybe another three miles in the other mm-hmm. direction. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows what happened on April 20th, 1999 at Columbine mm-hmm. High School. And Steve, you were a first responder that day. Correct. In your book, Sent to Soar, you wrote a chapter that referenced the story of that day for you. Right. Maybe we can get into the, all the details as we go throughout, but when you think back to that day, April 20th, 1999, What's the image that comes to your mind now? What's the what's the feelings? What are the feelings that sort of flow for you? Yeah, you know, when you go back to the day, the the first thing that popped in my mind when you asked it was was chaos. Mm. That the day was complete and total chaos. It was a beautiful spring day. Just was an early April. April was a beautiful season, and then it went into just complete and total chaos yeah. from from that day going forward for the next ten years. There's just total chaos in the, within the community. <laughs> to say that the chaos lasted 10 years is mm-hmm. in the community. Is mm-hmm. a, I remember when I moved here about 10 years ago, actually, well after the Columbine shooting happened at the high school. Uh, but since I moved here in, uh, let's see, I took some notes. 2010 at Deer Creek Middle School, two kids were shot. I don't know if you remember that. I, I remember there. that closely. I my, wife, my wife was a high school counselor. She worked in the high schools nearby. And she was called that afternoon. She had been working in the high school for two or three years, I think. Right. Was called that afternoon and said, hey, somebody's got to go over and help these kids. And she immediately right. turned the car and drove a mile and a half from our house to, right. to Deer Creek Middle School and, and helped there. Obviously, 2012, not only you and I and people around here, but people all over the country and probably all over the world remember the, the movie theater shooting that happened in right. Aurora, not too far from us. Right. Uh, 2013? Boy, that feels like it was more recent than 2013, but Claire Davis was killed at Arapahoe High School. Isn't that, it feels like it was like a couple years ago. 2013? I just drove over there the other day. Like I drove over to go shopping at the the place over there. It really just felt, almost when you drive past, it it still felt alive. It still felt like it was a part of the the moment, the story there. Yeah, you know, I did the memorial service for Claire Davis. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Yeah. that was a... That one feels like it was just a couple years ago. Did you do that here at this church? No, we did it down at the Denver Coliseum. Mm. Wow. That was 
big. Yeah, there were, I think, about 7,000 people who came to the, to the memorial service. People from all the school came, surrounding communities, other schools, other people within the, within the metropolitan area. It was kind of a lightning rod that struck yet again in a local high school. And then how many weeks ago now? Two weeks oh, ago? Two weeks ago, st- three weeks ago, STEM yeah. school. Yeah. yeah, STEM STEM school in Highlands Ranch. Right. That impacted people from our church community again. Right. right. How do you talk to these families? I, 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 no kidding, that sounds like a cliche question that I would ask in a podcast interview, but I, I mean it whole, how, what do you, how do you, what do you say? Well, you know, it's, it's a very gentle conversation because the world has just been racked. I mean, their sense of security and safety is destroyed. I think, you know, everybody, th- knows that there's a possibility in our current culture that uh, that their school could be the next school for a shooting. And everybody kind of knows that in the back of their head, but then when it does happen in your school, it's this reality that comes blasting into your world that that no place is really safe and secure, not even your kid's school. So it's always a very gentle conversation about how are you? How are your kids? What does your world look like? How can we be a stable force for you? How can we help you process? And there's usually a ton of processing that needs to happen for months, if not years, after the shooting happens. Yeah. And for you too, I'm sure, right? I mean... Yeah, you know, there's been 20 years for me since the yeah. Columbine shooting, so there's been a lot of healing for me. For me, it does feel like 20 years. For other people, every time the anniversary of the shootings come up, it's really raw. And they feel as though that it just happened. For me, no, it's been 20 years. It's been good 20 years with the healing, yeah. a lot of work around that. So there's a little bit of a jar that happens, like, you know, the Arapaho shootings or the STEM school. But then there's enough distance, some healing distance allows me to be much more, I think, hopefully present to people in the middle of the trauma. Yeah. I want to get into, if it's okay with you, I want to get into the story of your experience at... Columbine High School and, mm-hmm. and on that day and maybe on the days following as well. But maybe before we get there, because that feels like a, a, a vortex that will that will suck us into mm-hmm. that story right. uh, in a way that I want to go there. But before I go there, I want to I want to talk about what we can do now. I mean, you and I have sort of had these conversations or talked about it with the congregation for right. that matter. Right. What do, how, what do we do? This is far too common of an occurrence. I got more statistics for you. In 2018, there were 24 school shootings with injuries or deaths. Mm-hmm. 24 in 2018. 35 people were killed. 28 of them were students and 79 other people were injured. This year in 2019, so far, we're at the end of May right now, uh, the day or the moment we're recording this, 13 school shootings with injuries or deaths Two people have been killed and 20 been injured so far. If you look at all mass shootings, not just school shootings, there have been 166 total mass shootings in 2019 so far, in the first five months of 2019. 192 people have been killed in mass shootings already this year. You know, and then this, you know, in our neighborhood, you know, my kids didn't get to go to school one day because uh, the woman from Florida, who was obsessed with Columbine, flew out here bought a gun in our neighborhood and then killed herself later that day. But uh, this feels hopeless. It feels, I feel helpless as a dad of two little girls who Mm -hmm. I take to these movie theaters and I take to these schools Mm -hmm. every morning. I drop them off. Mm -hmm. I don't know what to do. I mean, I've got my own ideas, Mm -hmm. but even they feel a little mm, weak. 
mm-hmm. guess. And I wonder, I wonder how you guide others. I wonder what you what you think right now with with your experience and. Do you feel that helplessness? Hey, you know, I'm kind of a wild-eyed optimist, yeah. and I, I don't feel hopeless. Um, I feel actually very hopeful, feel very motivated, and I really do believe that we can cure this problem. Mm. I think that I really believe that if average citizens, average common level-headed citizens come together and everybody kind of puts their best heads together, that we can find some uh, solutions to this scourge, I call it a scourge upon our our society. And my focus really is school shootings. There's the mass shootings and whatnot. I think you can get lost in the vortex of the mass shootings and gun laws and all that kind of stuff. And and I've decided that's not my deal. I feel like called to focus on school shootings, just on school shootings. Mm -hmm. And I figure if we can find a cure there, that maybe that'll bleed out into the rest of society. But for me, my focus is school shootings. Yeah. So, you know, I'm a, it's no surprise to anybody listening or to you that, you know, I'm a big believer that I'm not sure if there are answers or not, but I'm pretty sure it starts with us showing up and talking to each other about it Mm -hmm. and engaging in meaningful dialogue Mm -hmm. that hopefully goes beyond that. But, Mm -hmm. uh, but at least we've got to start talking to each other about it. We've got to start trying to understand each other, not the, this issue seems to become have become about either guns or mental health, both right. of which are strangely deci- divisive issues. Right. Strangely divisive. Isn't that funny? It's very divisive. Yeah, uh, like incredibly divisive. Yeah. But like that's not, I feel like they are issues at hand, but not all the issues, right? right. Like that can't be, if we, if we made everybody mentally healthier and, I don't know, put different gun control laws in place, like, would that do it? I, I I think that might help, but would it do it? Well, I think there's there's two things. The more you, the more that I get into it, when I'm learning, as I'm calling it, there's some interior and exterior things that, we, that need to be done. Okay. There's some interior things that need to be done within schools to make schools safer. And to a huge extent, schools are already doing this. Security officers, you know, some trained personnel. They have kind of the whole plans that are in place as far as what to do when an active shooter shows up. So a lot of that infrastructure is already being done. But what they're really finding out is that what the best prevention for a school shooter is a good, strong, healthy community Mm. where the kids care about each other, where the students care about the kids, where the administrators care about the teachers, they care about the kids. So there's a, a healthy a web of care and concern and that so that that web where nobody can fall through that web. And I know that's a huge calling when we have student or high schools where there's 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 kids, but there needs to be a web that is created where kids just cannot fall through that, through that web because invariably, I forget the statistic, but it's such a high number of that the shooter leaks what they're going to do. And if, if people can catch that leak fast enough, that person can be stopped. They can be swept up into a net of whether it's a police net, an FBI net, or some type of net, or even just the net of the school administration, that that's enough to catch it. That, that if we can figure out, when, if we can listen to the shooter leak their information, and if there's a strong enough community for the kids who do know, they, they can safely report. And if then that the teachers and administrators know how to respond, that from that interior network, that that is a huge preventive thing right then and there. The uh, the image of a of a web or of a net 
it's powerful for me because, you know, as somebody who teaches social excellence for a living, teaches people how to connect with other people. Right. I normally think about a network or a web. I, I use that picture as a sort of this, this, you know, the way that you can impact the world. And people use the idea of a network, right? Like our mm-hmm. interconnected connections mm-hmm. as a way to advance professionally or whatever. But to flip that net upside down as a, the, the social connections that we have are the safety net that right. catch uh, right. catch those of us who are falling. Right, and I think it's, it's a perfect analogy to turn the, the concept of a network upside down because kids fall. Mm-hmm. I mean, they literally fall, and they need something to save them, some something that they can fall into, a net to fall into. Because for the most part, a lot of the kids are connected. I mean, for the vast, vast majority of our high school kids, they're filled with really good, normal, healthy kids, healthy families. It's just this nano percent of really disturbed kids who fall. Yeah. And we've got to find a way to, to create a web that will catch them. Because if we don't catch them, those are the kids who end up doing damage to themselves and definitely do damage to other, to other kids. I guess a strange question that might feel a little off topic, but I, I, th- I don't think it is. I'm guessing you've had, in your, in your however many years of being a pastor, you've probably had people who have come to this church or people you've interacted with in the community who have been difficult to connect with. Mm-hmm. They've been the maybe disturbed, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe totally disconnected, maybe socially not just awkward, but discomforting individuals. And as a pastor, you probably are in a professional position to, well, you got to at least try, right? You got—you right. you don't have the option to just, well, let's let somebody else right. deal with them, right? right? I think there's a lot of us who maybe have people in our life or kids who go to the schools where our kids go to, where we can think of we mm-hmm. went to school with that, well, it was better to just avoid the weird kid, you know, the kid who was, I don't know, like the, the kid who was just darker than we were, right? Right, like, right. Anyway, I wonder if you have advice on like how to how to connect with that person. How do what's the way to build a bridge to a person who feels like they're so far away from where you or how you perceive normal people being the way that they interact? See, and that's the key thing. Because if I'll answer the question. I think I'll answer the question, but <laughs> if I don't, bring me back to it. Kids who shoot are usually kids who have been ostracized by the community in some way, shape, or form. They've been, they've been they're the odd kid, they're the different kid. Yeah. The kid that, are, that is hard for people to connect to, they're dark or whatever it yeah. is. And so they isolate. And since they're so odd, people isolate them as well, especially other kids isolate them. Yeah. But even teachers and administrators isolate them. And the hard thing is to find ways to go beyond that barrier to reach out to them and to somehow include them in some meaningful way within the community. Uh, okay, let's go to churches. Churches, religion attracts and creates some of the most dysfunctional, violent people in our global society. Yeah. So with the church, I'm very aware. And we've had our, you know, Columbine United Church, I'm often aware that we attract some of the most brilliant people in the world. And we attract some of the most crazy oddballs I have ever seen yeah. in my life. And you're still not sure which camp to put me in. Well, we're that. still wondering about that. We're that. still wondering about that. But as within a church community, you have to do the same type of thing. You have to find ways to reach out to someone who is really different. Like on this past Sunday, someone came to the church for the first time and everybody's radar went out yeah. as far as this, this is a person who doesn't fit into the community 
And yet, so it's my job not to isolate them, but to go up to them immediately, shake their hand, meet them, the whole social excellence. How can I connect with this person? I want to connect with this person. I want them to feel involved. I want them to feel wanted and accepted. And I think you have to do that within the entire life of your community. Find a way, another Annette, so that everybody feels somehow connected. In fact, one of the things I often do is go through the church directory and say, how is this person connected? How is this person connected? And when you find someone that's that's isolated, you've got to find a way to reach out to them and say, you're not alone, yeah. that you are connected. And invariably, the person is difficult. Yeah. I mean, people are difficult. Even the most average human being has their own level of difficultness, and you've got to find a way to connect in some level with them so that they don't feel isolated yeah. and alone. You know, we do this thing... Uh... I don't know if I've ever talked about this on this podcast. It wasn't my idea. It's somebody else in our company came up with this. But it's a simple exercise when we're working with organizations. We ask them to think about, you know, within their larger organization, think about the smaller friend groups that make up that organization. We call them friend groups. Friend groups are Mm -hmm. normal. That's the way Mm -hmm. any organization like Mm -hmm. a church would Mm -hmm. operate. And then we just ask a really simple question. Very quickly, think about the one person who doesn't have a friend group. Right. And anytime we ask that, people can immediately picture somebody in their mind who probably doesn't have a friend group. Right. And then, then we often talk about like, okay, well, you probably have their phone number. Like, it's a good time to text them and take them to coffee, right. which is exactly what right. you're talking about, right? right? Like, literally go through the directory and find right. out who it is. In fact, I often, one of the things I try to pay attention to is when a name comes to my mind of somebody, I try to invariably follow up with that. Because yeah. I think that's my intuition telling me this person needs to contact of some way, shape, or form. So I would encourage anybody who's listening to this, if suddenly a name comes to your mind, oh, follow up with that. Yeah. Follow up with that. Yeah. I think about, I, you know, I, I doubt that there are a billion people listening to this podcast, but the people who do listen to this podcast are probably the people who would find themselves in a position to be the one person in the group, in the school, in the organization, in the town, in the community to do the outreach to the ostracized kid or the mm-hmm. ostracized person. And I think about, you know, I, I'm sure you can do the same thing that I can do, which is think about the moments in which I didn't do that or the moments oh, yeah. in which I, I let yeah. that person, I found the easy way around, right. right? Right. And invariably, when I don't when I don't follow up on my intuition, it always comes back to bite me in yeah. some way, shape, or form. Yeah. They could become angry. They leave the church. There's something I always go, I knew I should have followed up with that yeah. intuition and called that person. Yeah. Reached out in some significant way. So on my drive over here, I was re-listening to your podcast. You've got the Steve Pooh Benson podcast on Podbean. I'll put a link to it on our oh, website. Thank you. And uh, I was re-listening to the one where you talk about, I think you did this a year ago. Actually, I don't remember when when this episode came out, but I was re-listening to the one where you talk about your experience at Columbine mm-hmm. on the day of the shooting right. in 1999. And uh, you were reading the chapter from your book, and I thought that was a, a great way to do that, to just speak your voice into those words that you had put on paper in a book that, by the way, uh, has been a really powerful text in my life. It has, oh, has great. Thank moved you. me and it's given me definition into my life purpose right. in a way that maybe I didn't have before. And um, anyway, but you were, you were reading that and I, I was struck by a part of the story about what you did, the action you took. You know, when you say you're your first responder mm-hmm. to Columbine, that's probably, that's a difficult label to maybe put on yourself, but I love that you did because the mm-hmm. stuff that you did that day is, 
I don't think you were bandaging wounds. I don't think you were carrying bodies, but I think you were metaphorically at the very least in the work that you did for the community and for the parents and for the kids that day in the way that you tell that story and the, the particular action that you chose to take if you tell it, but you were standing at a library and you chose to stand up on a table and sort of take, <laughs> you mentioned chaos. You, you chose to take control of the chaos in a way. And I just love the, the action that you took, especially considering sort of the point of this podcast about the power of gathering people together. And when people, yeah. sometimes people just need to be organized. And when things right. are organized, things are better. Right. Could you take us through a little bit of your story? Would it be okay if we went oh, through yeah. a little bit of your story that day? Do you want to start at the library? Where do you want to start? No, we can start back a little. Feel free to start okay. when, you, when you got a phone S- call or whatever. Sitting, yeah, I was sitting here in my office. My wife called me, and she's, she was in a bagel shop or something like that, and where kids had come running in. She said, there's a shooting at the school. And I, we had just got done with the staff meeting here at the church, and I said, immediately I told the staff, let's go. And they all piled in my truck and we headed out. We And uh, there were police barricades and whatnot that had already been set up. But I knew my way around through the neighborhoods. And so we weaved our way around and kids were flooding out of the, of the school. And um, I told the staff to just get out. And they said, like, what, what do I do? I said, you go with those kids. You try to get them calmed down, try to bring some type of organization to the chaos. And so then... I think in my mind that they were the real heroes of the day because they literally ran into fleeing kids yeah. and huddled fleeing kids together and, and and brought them together. My staff was the real heroes of yeah. the day, yeah. not me. They were the real heroes of the day. Yeah. They literally just got out of the truck and ran to the kids. They did. Yeah, They did. They yeah. got out of the truck and, and they just ran. The kids were running, fleeing away, and they ran towards the kids and got them out of harm's way. Yeah. They were heroic efforts on my in my estimation. I kept on driving around till I found the command center and asked what was going on and found kind of the one of the ugly parts, I think, of the suburbans, uh, suburban lifestyle. I said, what was going on? One of the police officers said, a black African uh, group has taken over the school. <laughs> and I, I went, what? Yeah. And I remember thinking, what are you talking about? This, that is the most racist thing I'd ever heard. Because yeah. you knew that wasn't the case. Yeah. They didn't know, but to jump to that kind of conclusion was crazy. So I told them I was a minister. I knew the area. I knew the kids. I knew the school very, very well. How could I help? And they said, well, there's chaos down at the library across the park. Would you go? I said, of course. And so myself and another, my retired pastor, kind of vis- minister visitation, where he went with me. And we started jogging across the park to Clement Park to the library. I'll never forget, we came upon two kids, gym shorts, and they were just walking around. And I said, hey, what's going on? Well, something's going on in the school. They told us to get out. So we're just out here, don't know what to do. And it's like this kind of like crazy moment in the middle of chaos to kids. Yeah. And so I just told them, well, come with us. We're going to the library. And then we went. These are kids. They were just told, get out of the school. And they're and like, so they okay, were out of the whatever. school. And they were out of the school. Wandering around the park. Around the park. Yeah. One of them had, a, they were in a, in a weightlifting class. One of them had a weightlifting belt over yeah. their shoulder. It was surreal. It was a funny, surreal yeah. moment. So we went to the library and it was chaos. Because yeah. um, there were, you know, we have, remember there were 2,000 kids that had fled the school there were 4,000 parents who were fl- fleeing to the school. Right. And, and everybody's going in different directions. Right. Nobody Chaos. knows where to go. Right? Chaos. Yeah. 
And remember, like I think for listeners, it's important to remember 1999, was, it was a different world. Oh. There are, not that we've got it figured out, but there are protocols now. For right. My kids, my eight-year-old and 10-year-old kids know exactly what to do in the event of an active shooter in their school. Right. Different conversation right. for a different day. But then we this was, didn't happen or we didn't talk about well, it happening. We, well, we didn't. Columbine was the watershed moment because people began to realize if it could happen in Columbine, yeah. it could happen anywhere. Yeah. So it was a watershed moment. I mean, even the police departments, the sheriff and the police department didn't have didn't know how to communicate with one another. Yeah. So that was part of the, the craziness of the days. We had all these different departments responding. No one basically knew how to communicate with one another. Yeah. So new protocols developed. And so we were in the library, chaos, students crying, parents crying. And it was just a mess. Mm -hmm. And I was standing beside a sheriff and he was just standing watching. And I finally said to him, I said, do you mind if I do something? He said, sure, what are you gonna do? I said, I don't know, watch. And I literally got up on a table, blew up, you know, my fingers to my lips and, you know, in my best preacher's voice. And I said, we're gonna figure this out. Let's calm down everybody. Yeah. Kids are over here, parents are over here. Let's try to see if we can't start matching people up. Yeah. So, and people, and the cool thing was people responded. Yeah, people were looking for some type of direction that, yeah. and they responded very well to a gentle, clear presence within the middle of the chaos. They responded well. The uh, a I mean, there, there are a thousand things to talk about here from a social excellence perspective. A thousand mm -hmm. things to talk about just from a, your own experience perspective as well. But I think uh, in a moment of chaos, right. There are probably a number of people standing around thinking somebody should do something here, right. should, including the police officer you're standing right, right next to, right? Who's there and who wasn't doing anything wrong by any means? Right. But there was a moment of, of I don't know, courage, or we sometimes talk about it in in our work of, you know, being the person <laughs> being the person who just decides to step onto the dance floor, right? Like right. like. No matter what's going to happen, you might it may be a complete failure, right? Right. But you said, "I'm going to try here," and people in chaos, people need something to look at, right? Right. And you just became the something to look at, right. so that we could all just organize right. ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. And the the thing is to be a, a patient, clear, a sound, consistent voice, so you're not just some crazy person standing up on the table, because I think people can read that right away. Yeah. If, you, if you're a nutcase, yeah. people are going to read that, and they're not going to respond to you at, at all. But I think the, the, t the times where I've talked with other first responders, they've been the same type of thing. They responded, they decided to respond towards the chaos mm -hmm. instead of flee from the chaos. Mm -hmm. the, really important to note that I wasn't the only minister that was responding, that other ministers were responding Someone came from the south end of the school. Someone came from the east, uh, west end of the school. I happened to come from the east end of the school. Mm -hmm. So that I wasn't the only one. There were people who decided to go to the school instead of flee from the school. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of the, I think, of a leadership thing that you have to decide how are you going to respond to the chaos? So you can flee from it or you can respond to it. Yeah. And if you can respond to it from with a sound mind, a clear mind, Setting aside ego, bravado, you're not, you know, Captain America, you're just a concerned citizen. You're yeah. going to bring what you have to bear to the crisis. I, I think people respond to that very, very well. But at least they did in the situations that I've worked with. Yeah. They've responded well. You then did, you said, 
let's pull out some butcher paper and, and parents who are missing kids, write your names over here and students go over here if you're missing your parents and you just, right. just organize things. You just Put organize. Together. Yeah. You know, and it was interesting, this was the day before cell phones. Like I had a yeah. cell phone, a couple other people had a cell phone. I made sure my all my staff had cell phones. And so I told one of my staff, I said, let's communicate by our cell phones throughout the day. And people got really creative. There was another group of kids at an elementary school, Leewood Elementary School, that was about mm, a mile or so away. Mm-hmm. And she called me, said, there's a bunch of kids and parents here. We can't figure out if you have some of the kids and parents. How do we figure that out? I said, I have an idea. There were television crews that were outside. And we literally, I talked with the television crews. I said, tell you what, they're down there watching TV at us up here. I'm going to read you the names so that they can hear which kids we have. And they were immediately the cooperating, the, the television, so that there was this huge community-wide effort to, that came together spontaneous, people wanting to do the, do the right thing. That's what I felt is that the vast, vast majority of people want to do the right thing. Yeah. Even television people you would think would, you know, are out for their own self-interest. No, they were in it for the good of the of the community. Yeah. That day was probably full of small moments of heroics or small moments of people just helping, right? Mm-hmm. And it was uh, it obviously ended in in a lot of moments of pain and mm-hmm. a lot of moments of loss and confusion that right. as you said earlier lasted, you know, and lasts for a long, oh, long time. Yeah. Lasted a decade. Yeah. How many kids were killed that day? Two yeah. shooters, a teacher. Uh, yeah. Two boys killed 12 students, one teacher, uh, and then themselves. Right. Right? Right. 21 other people were injured that day. Mm-hmm. When I've heard you talk about this day before here, you always talk about, yeah, 13 total. You always talk about 15 people were killed that day. Mm-hmm. You've always been, you've always included the two boys who did the right. shooting. Right. And I wondered if you would talk about that for a minute. I'm not sure everybody does that, but it's right. always been a, a, just this little nuance of the way that you talk about that day. That right. as somebody who wasn't wasn't here, doesn't have, I, I don't have people that you know were at the school that day. That, right. But as a as an outsider who's come into this community, I think I've always respected that. Thank you. And I think it's shaped a little bit of the way that I look at all of these tragedies that have mm-hmm. happened. You know, sort of in my view, since. And I wonder if you would talk about that. Just sure. Talk about the way that you've talked about those boys. Yeah, you know, for me, I've really hung on to the humanity of those boys from day one. Yeah. You know, I, I've reminded myself from the day one going forward is that they were kids. Mm-hmm. They were 18-year-old kids. Mm-hmm. You can never take away from the fact that an 18-year-old really never understands the trauma that they can cause. These two boys had outlandish ideas of what they wanted to do, but they were still boys. There were still 18-year-old kids who barely knew who they were, what they were about, what their, the trauma they were going to cause. So they were just kids, and I wanted to hang on to their humanity as kids. I ended up knowing one of the families of the one of the shooters very, very well. Mm-hmm. In fact, the day after the shooting, I was invited to go to the family's house to, to meet with them. And what I saw was a family, a people, folks in a suburban home. I mean... Two-car garage, split level, I mean, a home. Yeah. And there was there was grandma, there were aunts and uncles, there was a brother, I mean, there's siblings, there's nieces. I mean, it was it was a family system. And yeah. they they were traumatized beyond traumatized. I mean, I think that their 
you know, their loved one had done this was beyond comprehension to them. And for me, that was another thing locked on is that, you know, that another family was traumatized by this. They, their kid had not only done this, but he was dead. Yeah. I mean, you cannot underestimate the, the fact that, that their kid was dead. Yeah. He had caused this, and yet he was dead. So that there was this grief upon grief upon grief. And that was profound for me to, to remember that these families, their sons were also killed. Yeah. They took their own lives, but they were also dead. Yeah. And for me, it's something really important to hang on to the humanity. I don't care who the shooter is, yeah. that we have to hold on to the humanity of these people. Because I think that's part of the healing, and, it's, and I know it's part of the cure. Somehow, some way, shape, or form, we hold on to the humanity of anybody who does the shooting. And there's the cure embedded somewhere in there as we hold on to our corporate humanity with each other. You know, as I was preparing for this uh, conversation today, I was looking up these statistics that I clumsily would mm. then well. <laughs> access here. But I like I hated it. I hated looking at, obviously didn't like looking up the statistics, but I didn't like that I was just writing down numbers mm-hmm. and that like I don't know the names of any of these kids. I don't mm-hmm. uh I don't I don't know the names of any of these kids at Columbine. I, mm-hmm. I mean I've walked through the memorial how many times? It's mm-hmm. it's you know, two and a half miles from my front door. I don't mm-hmm. know the names of these kids. Mm-hmm. And I, I think like to your point about like losing the humanity. I don't know. Like I know it's cliche at this point to talk about. Well, these are these are just statistics, and you know. But in some real way, this has become just monsters attacking our children, right? Like right. like it's become right. like some some fairy tale trope that isn't true, right? And but because we make this this scary fairy tale, we can't do anything about it right. because these are just monsters attacking our innocent children, and right. and it seems to happen in a vacuum. I I don't know. I, and that's why for me. As soon as we project the whole concept of a monster onto the kid, we've somehow, we've played into the shadow of this. Whereas if we hold on to their humanity, that we want them to find mental health, if we create that net that we talked about earlier that that will capture them, then that humanity is what what, what we want to appeal to, that they are human beings, they're hurting human beings, they're lost human beings, they're angry human beings, whatever they are, but they're still people. Yeah. And, you know, in some way, if we can connect with that, that's where the healing will come. And I really believe the cure to this, if we can hold on to everybody's humanity in the middle of it. Yeah. I, uh, you know, when the fall comes back around, kids just got out of school uh, around here. School just let out. So it's the beginning of summer break when we're recording this. And, you know, when the fall comes back, though, I'm going to take both my kids, uh, drop them off at school. You know, um, mm-hmm. my eight-year-old, my 10-year-old. And Elliot, my oldest, is finishing up her last year at, at elementary school. And so next year, she'll be going to uh, uh, she'll be going to middle school when she mm-hmm. gets to sixth grade. And I don't know, there's something to... Uh, too real because, of course, she's going to Deer Creek Middle School. Likely, that's where she'll go, which is one of the schools right. I listed earlier. And I don't know this stops being. I, you know, there's been two shootings at Deer Creek. I didn't know that. Yeah. Was there one? Actually, when I googled earlier, something came up there's, in the '80s or something. Right, like there's that. two that right? shootings. Right, when I first came here, there was a shooting at Deer Creek, and then there was a second one. I, so I'm sorry to interrupt. No, I not at all. Your, that, the, this is what like this is. To, to some extent, an academic exercise until it's not, right? And right. I'm sure that's true for everybody in right. the U.S. This is, a, this is a, a news story and a thing that we post about on social media and that we feel bad about until the moment it's not. And mm-hmm. when our kids either go to that school or that happened at our school or mm-hmm. 
to the people that we love. You know, when I travel around and speak, I had this weird string of things happen over the last few years where a week after Parkland, I spoke in Florida. Oh. Like uh, a, a month after the shooting in Vegas, uh, the big shooting that mm-hmm. happened in Las Vegas, I spoke at UNLV, like, mm-hmm. you know, two miles from where the shooting happened. It was, oh, Virginia Tech. I go to Virginia Tech every year, and, and mm-hmm. I'm there on the, like, two weeks after the anniversary every mm-hmm. single year. And mm-hmm. there's something strange that I feel a little guilty about, but not enough to do anything because I take a, there's a point of pride that I take in being, oh. in living in this community. Yeah. Uh, and living yeah. near Columbine High School. Yeah. I've Again, I wasn't here when that happened. This is not my story to co-opt. Mm-hmm. But I live here now, and I get to feel the, the strange but somehow beautiful aftermath of community. You know, I was uh, randomly went to a high school basketball game at Columbine mm-hmm. uh, several years ago. It was mm-hmm. just a, my wife was working at a local school nearby, and we went to watch some of her students play basketball, but it was a Columbine. But it was the year that the principal at Columbine was retiring. Right. And so there was this tribute to him and how heroic he was on the day of the shooting. And then a week later, I went to like a scholarship banquet at a church, another church nearby, and he was speaking at that banquet about how much that church had done as well for Mm -hmm. the people in the community after the shooting. And I started to like tap into this strange heartbeat of this area, right? This is a this is suburbia. This is cul-de-sac and chilies and Applebee's America, right? Like this is about <laughs> is. as suburbia as it gets. It is. And it's hard to find community in a space like this. Oh, it's hugely hard. And maybe there's something something about these dark moments that that maybe brings people together or adds mm-hmm. another layer of glue to an otherwise mm-hmm. disconnected uh, community. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you feel that at all. Yeah, I think that it, I think the shootings pushed on every raw wound within the community, and so part of the healing was he, trying to heal those raw wounds yeah. and to try to create a web yet again for yeah. the whole community to participate and be a part of. I'm going to take uh, that image of a, a web, sort of turning the network upside down, a web mm-hmm. that catches people. But you got to build that web, right? Yep. That web is built out of uh, handshakes with the person who makes you uncomfortable. That, right. that web is built out of conversations that are right. filled more with with more care than your own comfort. Maybe right. it's filled with real relationships and looking for the lost people and mm-hmm. reaching out to them. Um, that's that's an important image that yep. I'll take away from this. Anything you want to make sure that that we hear, uh, the, the listeners of the People People podcast? Yeah, you know, I think that for me, I would encourage people to be wild-eyed optimists about this, mm-hmm. to, to really believe we can figure out a cure to this. I look at it as a disease. Yeah. There is a cure. We can find it. We will find it. And the key for me is average, common people coming together to share their best thoughts, their best insights, and the courage to be able to step forward. Yes, and say that, to not just allow somebody else to solve this problem, but to allow them to be a part of the solution. I, that's how we're going to find the solution to this, is by average people coming together. Not lawmakers, yeah. not you know government officials. Yeah, they play a, a significant role, but it's really going to be people yeah. who solve this problem. Yeah, like real people in... Real people. Normal suburbia right. like us, right? Everybody's yeah. listening to this podcast as yeah. a role to play in this. Everybody's got to step forward. I sometimes overdo metaphors, but the metaphor of you 
stepping onto that table in a room full of chaos, a room full of people, parents and kids panicking and feeling lost and feeling pain. Somebody, somebody making the choice to step up onto the table and just try to organize the conversation. Mm-hmm. That metaphor means something to me. Oh, cool. uh, as, as I look at a chaotic world where a yeah. lot of people are scared and, and yeah. traumatized, uh, yeah. I think as many of us as possible need to step up onto the table and just try and organize right. the conversation and make right. it civil and uh, find a way forward. And right. to your point, be wild-eyed optimists. Right. Cool. Thanks, Steve. Honored to be, be here with him. I appreciate it. All right. Big thanks to our guest, Steve Poos Benson. Man, he's such a wise leader and a kind heart. I am so grateful to have Pastor Steve in my life. Hey, if you want to follow more from Pastor Steve, check out his podcast, stevepoosbenson.podbean.com. That's where you can find it. Or maybe check out his blog, stevescowboyjesus.blogspot.com. That's steves cowboyjesus.blogspot.com. He goes by the handle Cowboy Jesus, and I've always liked that. You know, we do a Cowboy Sunday in our church every May or June. Uh, We'll have Cowboy Sunday, and I don't know why, uh, but it's the uh, most important day of our church's community. That's maybe gives you a little clue into what our church is all about and how weird we are, but we all dress up as cowboys and come and listen to old-timey country western music and somehow find a way to worship the things that are important to us and the people who attend there. I hope you get a place like that. I hope you have a place where you can gather together to talk about the important things of life and the way that you want to talk about them, whatever those are, and in whatever way makes sense to you. Thanks for joining this episode and season two, big kickoff episode of season two of the People People podcast. Hey, we got some new cool episodes coming up. Make sure you check them out. As always, find us at social-excellence.com. Thanks for joining us for the People People Podcast. This has been Matt Matson, your host. Stay social, stay excellent. See you out there, people.